I'm actually uh, surprised that <laughs> you want to talk to me uh, about Steve Kerr life because I'm from Toronto and didn't the Raptors upset your initial uh, Warriors book like back in the day? You have you have you have done some great research there. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, but, uh, I guess it worked out the way it was meant to work out. All right, much like Steve Kerr's life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sammy, your happy life coach, Yunan. When you look back on your life, are there particular moments that naturally prompt gratitude? Are there circumstances that at first seemed like darkness was setting up camp, only over time, they actually became significant moments of light? If you've read Scott Howard Cooper's Steve Kerr, A Life, the answer to both questions is yes. There is a relentless optimism and an undaunted joy that rings out on almost every page of this special NBA biography. And yet it hasn't been an easy life. This My Summer Layer conversation starts with the assassination of Malcolm Kerr, a political studies professor active in the Middle East. In fact, I'm actually recording this introduction and editing this episode in Cairo, in Egypt, not far from where Steve Kerr played basketball, successfully taking on uh, poor Egyptian adults. <laughs> and I guess like a, a sort of cultural adaptation of white man can't jump. Suckers. And yeah, Scott Howard Cooper and I do get to Steve Kerr's highlights with the Bulls, the Spurs, and lately the Warriors. But with all that basketball success... There are moments of sorrow, of strangeness. This book is aptly titled Steve Kerr, A Life. And a well-lived life means light and darkness, joy and pain, hope, and of course, heartbreak. Yet even when the circumstances happen beyond our control, it's always possible for us, any of us, including Steve Kerr, to choose and respond with gratitude. This is an inspiring episode that even acknowledges the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. <laughs> My hope is that you'll make gratitude a habit in your life, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. So says JFK. Kind of like resurrecting dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. But for now, let's focus on Steve Kerr and his surprising life, if that works. Absolutely. When I look at it, right, in terms of the history of the NBA, it's filled with uh, white sharpshooters, right? J.J. Redick just retired. Uh, I know Larry Bird is a superstar, but you have classic role players, which include like Thunder Dan Marley, John Paxson, Tim Legler, and of course, Steve Kerr. So knowing all these like classic white sharpshooters exist in the NBA, what's your pitch to the publisher? Like, how is Steve Kerr any different? Well, because of his whole life, uh, it never was intended to be a book on guys who could shoot mm -hmm. uh it, it's strictly about this guy because uh i'll tell you exactly how i pitched it to the publisher uh, when we had a phone conversation i said this is a story of a guy that's had a unique career but a fascinating life just the the things that have gone in in, in his storyline uh there's nothing like it in all sports um obviously he's He's had some interesting moments in basketball, 
but away from basketball, you you can connect Steve without any difficulty to obviously Donald Trump, Kim Jong Un, Yasser Arafat. Yes, uh, and that's for that. That's before you even get into uh, Phil Jackson, Michael Jordan, Greg Popovich, Steph Curry. Uh, his life has touched so many different areas. Uh, he's lived around the world. He's had experiences that nobody else has had. And that was the premise of the book, not, hey, here's a guy that was a good shooter. Yeah. For you, then, I guess the emphasis is on the last two words of the title, a life, right? Because as NBA fans, we get all excited for the first part of the title, which is Steve Kerr. But for you, the excitement is a life. Well, I think that there's something in there for everybody because there's certainly a lot of basketball. I, I don't want to make it seem like we devote a couple paragraphs to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to his playing career, his yeah. coaching career, but it just breaks it down, uh, put things in a new perspective uh, when you talk about um, maybe some things that have been mentioned in passing, but not really detailed. Looking at everything through a Steve Kerr prism really changes things uh how it's amazing he ended up with the bulls when he never was supposed to be there mm-hmm. uh, how it's amazing when he ended up with, that he ended up with the warriors when he was never supposed to be there and you can go on and on and on and see that there are numerous instances in his life where you put this all together and this was never supposed to happen that's part of his amazing path so I want to start at the beginning of his path then, because you've already kind of alluded to this. There's a lot of triumph and a bit of tragedy in Kerr's life. And your book came out June 15, uh, 2021, which is a little bit right before Father's Day on June 20. So I want to start with just kind of like some of the Malcolm Kerr uh, aspect of Steve's life. Can you just give us like in broad strokes of just who Malcolm Kerr was? Malcolm Kerr uh, was a educator uh, who taught political science. He was in the, and at times head of the political science department at UCLA. Uh, he was respected by people on several different sides of the Middle East conflict, but he was an expert in that area. Uh, his parents both taught at American University in Beirut, which is how uh, Steve was, came to be that, he, that Steve was born in Beirut. And Malcolm decided that uh, he had an offer to become president of American University and knew the risks that that involved. Uh, he and his wife talked about it. The family talked about it. Nobody was blind to the possibilities of the bad that could happen. But the Middle East, and especially Beirut, meant so much to Malcolm that he just felt like he could not pass it up, even knowing what could happen. And the worst did happen in January of 1984. Steve was a freshman at the University of Arizona. Uh, The rest of the family was, for the most part, in the Middle East, in Beirut, in Cairo. And uh, Malcolm was assassinated uh, in the hallway outside of his office at the university continue that thread of what you're talking about one of the themes in steve kerr's life and throughout your book is resiliency like was there a specific setback or uh, even injury in kerr's life that kind of stood out to you perhaps it was even inspiring to you the way he was able to bounce back uh and endure this tragedy and then somehow transform it into a triumph there's there's been several times uh none bigger obviously 
and the resiliency to push through the loss of his father. Uh, Steve and Malcolm were very close. Uh, Steve adored him, respected him, admired him, appreciated him. And still, decades later, uh, if he thinks about his father, will will break out in tears, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes on the court, as a matter of fact. And there's been several instances where you mentioned that that resiliency that you mentioned really came through. And a lot of that was tied to basketball. Uh, basketball was a life preserver for him in a lot of ways, never more than pushing through the loss of his father. Uh, people at Arizona expected him to either go to uh, Beirut to join the family for the services or at least take some time away from basketball. But he told Lute Olson right away, I'm staying with this team. I need, I, if, I'm, if I'm there with the family, uh, I'm sitting there staring at the walls, but mm -hmm. I need to play basketball. Uh, he pushed through the biggest, that's the biggest loss of his life without a doubt. Then there's also been the health issues. He, he blew out his knee in the summer after his junior year in college, playing for Team USA in the world championships, and was told before he'd even left the arena by a doctor, uh, it's likely you're never going to play again. And that, of course, was devastating to someone for whom basketball meant so much. And what people probably remember the most of Steve pushing through a difficult situation when what started as a disc issue in his back a few years ago mm -hmm. led to a procedure that uh, that where his spinal uh, column got nicked and spinal fluid drained into his body. And that's when he had to miss uh, parts of a season, parts of the playoffs. Uh, he was having to, to consider retiring, to giving up his dream job as coach of the Warriors because it took everything he had just to get through the day, just mm -hmm. to stand up and walk across a room sometimes was was very, very challenging. So there's been the health issues and there's been the emotional issues, but I, I think you hit on a key point there that a lot of Steve's story is that resiliency. Yeah, and so speaking of then resiliency, can you just share how – Kerr ended up on the Bulls from Orlando because when Steve was there, he was clearly not magic uh, in the Disney capital. <laughs> but the timing, though, of ending up going to Chicago and all that happened with the Bulls over the few years, that is like classic Kerr. That's a theme that kind of shows up all the time in your book. And so I think it highlights kind of what you're getting at. Oh, I think you nailed it. Uh, that is a large part of his life story, his trajectory is turning bad into good. And that happened in his college decision that happened with uh, the Warriors opportunity, but it may never have happened more than when he joined the Bulls. Uh, he couldn't get on the court the season before for the 41 and 41 magic. And here he is going around thinking I can play for the Bulls coming off a world championship. Uh, Michael Jordan, BJ Armstrong, John Paxson, but you know what? That's a place. That's a place I can go. Yes. And he's a free agent, as I said. Not even the, the Orlando Magic never even had a conversation about bringing him back. Mm -hmm. Nobody showed any interest through July, through August. There's you get later in the summer, and there's a couple feelers, but no offers. And uh, Steve is thinking about having to retire. That's that's how low he was. That's how far out of anybody's thought process he was that he ends up thinking 
I'm going to have to retire. I'm going to call Lute Olson and see if I can go and become a grad assistant or, <laughs> or, or, or you know, some, the, the third assistant or something like that just mm-hmm. to get my coaching career started. And he's showing up. Uh, Sean Elliott uh, had a fundraiser in Tucson for the Boys and Girls Club. And Steve, of course, shows up because Sean asked him to. And Steve is telling people, you know, <laughs> I'm basically I'm, I'm going to have to retire. Uh, and it gets to September, very late in the off season. And the Bulls think, well, you know, all right, you can never have too many shooters. Here's a guy who's, he carries himself well in the locker room. So you're not going to have any problems if he's not playing, mm-hmm. he's going to show up ready to practice. And he ends up signing a make deal good with the Bulls, which means he's un- he shows up without even a guaranteed contract. That's, that's how bad things were for Steve and his career at that point. And a few days later, after he signs, Michael Jordan retires. Yes. And that changes everything. Because yeah. suddenly, Steve Kerr has gone from the guy that, that the Bulls signed because, yeah, why not? It's, it's a low investment to, geez, we may need this guy. Mm-hmm. And he, he gets an opportunity. He's a perfect fit for Phil Jackson's triangle offense and establishes himself and shows that he can play in that setting so that when Michael comes back, uh, a season and a half later, um, Steve is Steve is has solidified his place on the team and ends up then writing is one of the guys that writes Michael's coattails to the championships. Yeah, the second three beat. And what's interesting too is like the reason I brought up Malcolm Kerr as well is because I wanted to highlight some of the flavor of Kerr's international background and experiences. Because you write on page 20, Kerr is about to go to high school in the U.S., but uh, you write on page 20, in the nearly 16 years, Steve Kerr has lived in the U.S., the Middle East, Europe, and counting months-long vacations, Northern Africa. That sounds less like a NBA player resume, more like a coach's resume, considering how... <laughs> Uh, the internet, the game has become so international. We have so many different international players now. This almost like prepared him more for coaching than for playing, or prepared him to become a diplomat. Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. Like that's an unusual like trajectory for an NBA player and coach. Oh, absolutely. And but I think uh, I agree with you that something like that absolutely prepared him for coaching. Because one of Steve's strengths all these years later, now that he is in that job, is he he's great at connecting with people. And that's obviously a huge deal for any coach. Mm-hmm. But uh, and this is something that people saw in Steve during his playing career the same way that he was always mature. Uh, he he could hang out and get along with guys who maybe grew up in Europe maybe grew up in the inner city of, uh, of America, one of America's inner cities to the guys from some, some country kid from the middle of nowhere uh, in a small town in the Midwest. Uh, Steve understands people. Uh, he gets along with people very, very well. And I don't think there's any question that his background has a lot to do with it. He understands how to relate to people because he is, he grew up around uh, people with, many, many different backgrounds. And is Steve Kerr, the the coach, different from Steve Kerr, the player? Obviously, the relating to, and connecting with everyone, that's universal because there's locker rooms in each scenario. But is Kerr, the coach, different from Steve Kerr, the player? 
Only in one sense, I think, and, and we get into this in the book, uh, he was so much more confident when he took over as a coach without ever having done it before than he was as a player. Uh, in his playing days, from the very beginning, when he ends up going to Arizona, he's the first guy telling people, geez, I've got no business to be here. <laughs> I can't play. I shouldn't be in the Pac-10. Yeah. And then he gets drafted in the NBA in 1988, and he's the one going around telling people, geez, if I, if I can squeeze a year or two out of this, I, I would be thrilled. Mm -hmm. and ends up playing, then he ends up playing 15 seasons. Uh, confidence was a problem for Steve through most of his playing career. And then he becomes a head coach, and he's telling guys, his players, about how the Warriors not only can be a championship team, but have a large window to win multiple championships. <laughs> and they had never been out of the first round before. Yeah. And so the confidence was definitely something different about Steve, the coach versus Steve, the player. But otherwise, he's basically the same guy. And that's what we talked about a minute ago, the, the relatability, the way he connects with people, the way he gets along with people. Uh, it helped that he showed up with the credibility of a player that had won several rings and Phil Jackson was saying nice things about him and Greg Popovich was saying nice things about him. Those things obviously help when you're a first time head coach and you're taking over a new team mm -hmm. uh, that is expecting success. But more than that, he's, he's just this guy that says, yeah, I, I, I really think this is going to work and, and he'll stand up when he needs to stand up and understands that there's time to just let the players run the show. This confidence, like you said, the team under Mark Jackson was okay. Uh, I think they had like a 50-win season one time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they are, they were good. They made not not great. They won the playoffs and and got to 50 wins. So mm -hmm. it's not like they were, it's not like they were a 500 club with no future. Right. Uh, but like you said, this confidence is kind of strange because, like, like, people were people did respect the Warriors and what Mark Jackson was doing. But at the same time, they were never like this quote unquote threat or multiple championships. Uh, and Kerr kind of inherited more or less the same team when he took over. So I'm curious from your experiences, because you're an L.A. sports journalist, so you covered early Kobe, uh, you covered some of the early Kobe-Shaq era. You know what that energy is like and that vibe and that heavy weight of expectations of where a team can like go all the way or be a championship contender. Uh, after the Warriors like fired Mark Jackson, did the Warriors mirror at all that Kobe-Shaq energy or that vibe like that this was a team destined for greatness? No, not at all. Um, the Kobe-Shaq thing was much different because Shaq was established and Kobe was not well known at the time that high school players didn't get nearly the publicity that they do now. Certainly NBA people knew him, but it's not like, it's not like Kobe was in the conversation for the number one pick or even mm -hmm. a top five pick, uh, anything like that. So it was much different. The Warriors uh, were a team that hadn't, proven anything really uh, they were a team that had some expectations because they had young talent because they had reached the playoffs and broken the 50 win plateau uh, but you got to remember at the same time uh, people were really excited about the clippers of blake griffin deandre jordan chris paul lob city lob city the war the uh, the thunder had kevin durant russell westbrook Serge Ibaka, a few other guys and so it's not even like 
the Warriors were the team of the future. There were several teams of the future at the same time, in addition to uh, the veteran clubs that were already established. So no, when, when Steve is on the phone one time, uh, he's in the West coast, uh, Harrison Barnes is down in Miami in the off season working out and Steve and Harrison are on the phone and they're watching the Western conference finals, uh, Spurs and thunder. And they're talking to each other. And Steve says to Harrison Barnes, you know, this can be us. We can we we can get there and we can win multiple championships. And even Harrison told me, he says, I, I thought the guy I said, you know, we haven't been out of the first round, right? <laughs> but it was so so the Warriors had reason for optimism. Obviously, Steph Curry was turning into a star mm-hmm. and they had other players there as well. But it's not like they had the market cornered on optimism. There were there were other teams there that were either established good or had a very good chance to be good. It wasn't just, okay, now it's the Warriors. It was a much different situation. And to be showing that much confidence uh, w- was pretty interesting. I want to switch slightly, because I alluded to your uh, work as uh, in the LA Times sports journalism but I want to switch slightly to your career and your life now because we've been talking about Kerr's life and specifically the LA Kings because Wayne Gretzky kind of sparked your NBA <laughs> journalism career is that <laughs> is that a way to put it how would you put it it's a strange set of circumstances when <laughs> when we talk about life's surprises uh, that certainly fits in uh, I was on track uh, to cover to be named the beat writer for the LA Kings in uh, as we get into the summer of 1988 yeah 1988 Mm -hmm. and it was sort of the next step up I'd been covering the high schools and at that point the LA Kings were were kind of the starter beat for for the pro and, and major colleges and so I was told that I probably was going to do that and then all of a sudden the Kings trade for Wayne Gretzky and that obviously changed changes everything around my team because now every hockey fan in in North America is going to be, is going to be paying attention to the LA Kings and it's going to suddenly turn to a much bigger deal. And the boss said, well, we can't put a a new guy on a starter beat on Mm -hmm. the, on this, that everything just changed. Well, what do we have available? All right, let's put them on the Clippers instead. (laughs) And that changed my life forever because I ended up staying on the NBA for, for decades it's it's a strange set of circumstances huh yeah do you relate then when you're writing about Kerr's life and researching the book do you relate at all to that sense of luck or being blessed or fortunate I don't know how you want to frame it like you both had these kind of incredible Forrest Gump type moments of success (laughs) right Uh, that naturally kind of prompts gratitude when you look back at it because you're like that doesn't make any sense how did I end up here so you relate then, I guess, to Kerr's life in that same sense? I, I guess in a sense, uh, I'm certainly appreciative. I know I'm the luckiest guy in the world to have done what I have done. Uh, I feel um, it, it, it seems like a gift that I've had this career that I've had. Uh, I, I don't take any of it for granted. Uh, I think Steve's deal is a little bit different because he's had to do it with 20,000 people watching in person and millions of people watching on TV. And he's had all these, all these moments where fate intervened. I may have had one or two, 
Um, but Steve, uh, I, I think, is the first person to say that he can't believe that any of this has happened. Mm-hmm. As I said, the college choice, the long NBA career, uh, he, he wasn't supposed to become the Warriors coach. Remember, he had accepted the job to become coach of the Knicks. He told Phil Jackson, I'm coming. Yeah. And only after that bailed on on that opportunity to become coach of the Warriors. So he wasn't supposed to be in Golden State, just like he wasn't supposed to be in Chicago or in Tucson or in a lot of other places in his life. So this is a a clunky question. I don't really know how to uh, how to frame it properly. But like, I'm curious about perspective in terms of like sports journalism, because there are certain details in the Steve Kerr book. Uh, I'm sure that are informed solely by your perspective there's a certain there's certain moments or i guess details that you're on the hunt for is that journalism training is that who you are because i think of of uh talking heads like colin cowherd and uh, michael wilbon they have a really distinct perspective it's one of the reasons why their shows are so popular and i'm not even talking about like hot takes or reacting to a game it's the ability to see or identify connections i guess that's the best way to put it is that journalism training is that who you are or where does that come from I think probably all of the above. Uh, certainly it's, it's training. Um, I, I grew up basically at the LA times and you cannot have a better training ground than that. Um, it was an amazing time at an amazing place. And I was, when I talk about all the ways I've been blessed to have been there around that, to sort of be standing on the sidelines, watching it all happen is something that has helped me out an awful lot. And I've, I've been surrounded by uh, good teachers, good mentors and and people I appreciate to this day, even if I'm not in regular contact with them. But a lot of it is, it's just kind of a gut. Uh, What, what do people want to read? What, what do you want to make sure stays in? What do you want to cut out? Because Mm -hmm. maybe it makes the story drag a little bit. And I was fortunate to have a really good editor at William Morrow, a guy named Nick Amflett, who, who gave me his votes on, uh, what should be taken out and why. And it just sort of, I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to a gut on what makes the story better, what makes it drag and maybe it slows it down too much and you want to take it out. It's sort of, you, you always want to go for details in any story whenever possible. And certainly if you're doing something as extensive as a book, details are really good, but it's also possible to over detail where you really make somebody mm-hmm. feeling like they're, they're having to sort of slog through, you know, waist deep mud to get to the next page. <laughs> and, and so you want details, but you don't want too many details. And, and at some point you just have to rely on your gut on to determine that fine line. Yeah, it's a tangent, but I remember reading Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. And there's several pages where he explains the DNA and the process of how they made the dinosaurs. And I'm like, look, dude. I'm willing to suspend the disbelief. I know the dinosaurs. <laughs> I don't really care about the science or whether it's accurate or not. I get it. The dinosaurs are real. Let's get the chomping. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I get what get you the, mean by get like. The chomping. I like that. I, I get what you mean by the, the details, right? Like getting the balance right. That's the whole thing. Uh, you're asking somebody to, to read and stay interested in a hundred thousand, 110,000 words. Um, you, it's it's a strange thing because you go into it thinking I need to know everything uh, about Steve's life. You're writing a book, so you sort of have 
unlimited space. It's not like a newspaper uh, where you only where you have to run into the ads at some point or even a website where they will still tell you don't write more than X number of words. Keep it at keep it at a thousand words, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do something like a book project that attempts to take on someone's entire life, you begin with thinking, I need to put everything in there. And one of the things I learned is that, no, you don't. You want to have everything relevant in there because, um, you know, finding out that Steve got a, a, a B in chemistry in high school is doesn't really matter unless he was going to be a chemist or he went and punched out the teacher for getting a bad grade. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's just an example. So you want it to be all encompassing, uh, but there's such a thing as too all encompassing. And that's one of the things uh, I hope I address properly in the editing process. And when people read the finished product, that they think that the story includes everything, yet still moves at a good pace. That mirrors uh, Kerr's uh, practice habits. Uh, when he first got to the NBA, you talk about how, or you wrote about how he would only like basically like practice little shots that he knew that he would take in games rather right. than like putting up like, I don't know, a hundred threes or something from random spots. He would, he would know which spots he would be getting the ball on the court. And so he would be practicing. So he, it wasn't necessarily volume of like putting up a thousand shots every day in the gym or something like that. It's more like focus and precision. And that's kind of what you're talking about. It kind of mirrors the same process. You know, these are the spots that you got to hit and the places you got to go to, to make the three. Or in this case, write the paragraph. Preparation has always been one of Steve's cornerstone. It's such a corny thing. It's a cliche. You know, always be ready and stay prepared. And we all hear it and we all talk about it, whether you're an athlete or a podcast host, that, that you want to be prepared for the next interview. But Steve really believed it. And he, if you ask him how he, made, how he got through 15 years of, of playing in the NBA and how he became a successful coach, he would point to preparation because uh, you gave the perfect example that that this is a guy that loved to to play shooting games as much as anybody and goof around and stay after practice with teammates, but he would only do it after getting in the shots that he might get in that game that night, even if even if it was one of those stretches where he was barely ever playing and the fame, the, the biggest moment of his playing career, of course, was, hitting the shot in game six of the 97 finals to give Mm -hmm. the bulls the championship uh, over the jazz. And in the huddle, there's a timeout before the bulls go back on the court. And he sort of, and Michael tells him, be ready. Uh, The jazz are going to double team me. So Steve, make sure you're staying ready. And Steve sort of points a middle finger back at him and says, I'll be ready. Give me the ball. I'm going to be ready. And if you tell Steve Kerr, or if you ask him how that moment happened, he's going to tell you preparation. Uh, same thing. He was in the, the second biggest moment uh, was with the Spurs in the Western Conference Finals against the Mavericks in game six as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had not been playing at all. He, mm-hmm. he tells he, he tells people to start calling him Ted, as in Ted Williams, because his body had <laughs> been frozen after he died. He's, he says, so call me Ted. I'm, I'm on ice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't playing at all. And all of a sudden he gets in that game and he starts hitting shots. And the Spurs pull out the win and go on to win another championship. And same thing when he becomes a coach. He had been taking notes 
for many years on what he would do once that opportunity came, because he knew he had, for years he'd wanted to be a coach. Mm-hmm. And so he's going around on his TNT broadcasting duties. And as, as they're talking to coaches or walking practice, watching practices on an off day, uh, he's taking notes. Oh, I like that play. I'd like to run that or a method on how, what he saw and how a coach handled a situation during a timeout or how he talked to a player just anything from X's and O's to personalities uh, to dealing with the front office and the ownership. He was taking notes about being prepared for his chance to become a coach. Preparation has always been a big part of Steve's life. And not just preparation, but it's also, he's got mantras like play with joy. That's also been one of the distinct hallmarks of the Warriors run when they were on the, when they got to the finals five times in a row was that sense of joy um, and I think that's really kind of like a standout that like you don't really hear a lot of NBA coaches kind of talk about that. A lot of NBA coaches are are good at X's and O's and that kind of stuff like that. But you see like a coach like Phil Jackson or even Popovich, they're also good at the psychology and trying to manage all these like 12, 15 egos, uh, personality traits, eccentricities, all these kind of things. And Kerr's kind of approach is really unique in terms of, like, just play with joy. You could see that he's learned a lot from Pop and from Phil, uh, but also a lot of it goes back to those life experiences that we talked about, that he urges uh, his players, the, the Warriors staff, every, even the fans, uh, to appreciate the good moments. A couple of years ago, uh, he thought, you know, there's a chance that this that our window is going to be closing soon. And this was even before Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson got hurt in the playoffs. But he knew that, that Durant was going to be a free agent. And he knew that some guys were getting up there in the years. And he's telling everybody around the team, appreciate this. Really understand that that the positives that are going on here and that this just does not happen in every organization. That we got a good thing going. Don't wait to look up 10 years from now and say, man, I I wish I would have appreciated it more at the time. Appreciate it now. So his talk of joy, uh, of appreciating the moment uh, is real. That's who Steve is. They're not they're not cliches to put on a poster uh, or put on a uh, to paint on the locker room wall. That's really who he is. And a lot of it is. Uh, because of how he grew up. A lot of it is because he lost his father and, and it taught him a lot about appreciating the time you have with the people who mean a lot to you. Yeah, we've gotten now full circle in our conversation. Um, and actually, in a sense, so have the Warriors because they've started off strong <laughs> this year. Uh, Curry recently scored 50 points the other night. Uh, so it's great to see that the Warriors and Coach Kerr are back on track and kind of getting it done again. Well, this is this is what they wanted. If, if you would have said to Steve last year, maybe even the year before, but certainly at the start of this year, uh, tell me what what your goals are uh, beyond a number of wins or obviously they're getting a championship. Steve, I think most of all, just wanted the chance to to win or lose on the court. If they would have gone out. Uh, because of the injuries, uh, I think that would have been really frustrating. But the way they started this year and knowing the impact that Clay can eventually have, um, the way you see that Steph Curry is is not playing to his age. He's playing five, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this, this has given Steve and the Warriors what they want, and that is a chance to win or lose 
on the court in the playoffs, not to have it decided by an injury. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing, too. Like, reading your book, as we're wrapping up now, but as reading your book, Steve Kerr kind of operates like a ninja. He is very, <laughs> is very sneaky. And like you said, he kind of barely got to Arizona, barely got to the NBA. And he's just always kind of hanging around. But when he has these opportunities, he starts hitting these big shots. He starts doing these things. And again, a lot of the talk at the beginning or like going to this NBA season was, oh, the Warriors will probably like be middle of the pack. Maybe be like, maybe they'll sneak into the playing tournament again. Uh, may not make the playoffs. Like I saw a lot of negativity or like a lot of people kind of underestimating the team. And I know it's still early in the season. But again, it's just the testament of Steve Kerr being a ninja. We're like, you never see him coming, but once he shows up, he starts like wrecking everything like Bruce Lee. Perfect. Because you know what? I, I think if the Warriors have a successful season, uh, and obviously that's that's a subjective term, maybe that means championship or nothing. Maybe if they get to the Western Conference Finals and, and lose a tough conference finals, some people will still say it's been successful. But if they have a successful 21-22 campaign, uh, this is going to be another example of who Steve Kerr is, because yeah. as we've talked about through the course of this interview, he has been about proving people wrong. And all those people who said the Warriors are done, uh, Clay's not going to make it back, Draymond's too much of a loose, a loose cannon, Steph at some point is going to start playing like he's 55 years old instead <laughs> of 25 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, the Warriors, you know, they were uh, what used to be, and, and otherwise they're not really that serious. Uh, Steve lives for these moments to prove people wrong. He's done it so much through his career, and I think he definitely views this as another chance to prove people wrong. So in a lot of ways, this season sets up perfectly for Steve and the Warriors, but especially for Steve. So on that positive note, where can people find you online to discuss uh, Steve Kerr, A Life, uh, the book you've written, or discuss NBA or uh, you seemed really excited when I brought up Jurassic Park and dinosaurs and getting to chomping. So where can people find you online to discuss any of these topics? Well, first of all, can you get can you uh, make sure that I get some Michael Crichton like sales numbers? Oh yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> I'll do I'll do what I can. That's why I did the interview because I was like, man, it's a good book. Let's help the brother out and see if we can get some more attention on this thing. You know, any, any, anything that uh, sells like Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. uh, I'm all for that. So so uh, I'll make you the publicity director and get those sales going like Jurassic Park sales. But uh, I'm on <laughs> I'm works. on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at S. Howard Cooper. Uh, Facebook, Scott Howard Cooper. Um, the book is available in a lot of uh, major bookstores around around the uh, North America, United States and Canada. Uh, I've really been pleased at the at the responses from the independent bookstores have been fantastic. Uh, it's available on all the major online spots as well. So uh, I guess I would conclude by saying I hope people enjoy reading Steve Kerr a Life mm -hmm. as much as I as much as I enjoyed writing it because I had a blast. I hope that energy comes through. Uh, that's not just something I'm saying as a sales pitch. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's it's a unique career but a fascinating life as i said before and uh, i had a ton of fun it was a lot of work but a lot more fun i really i really had a great time doing it yeah there's definitely passages i can't think of one right now but there are definitely passages 
where you can almost hear you as you're typing it up or doing the research or whatever for it. You can hear yourself. Like I can hear you going, oh, wow. I can't believe this is crazy. This is crazy. This is happening. I, right. I, so, I, I'm, I'm writing about meetings at the White House. Yeah. Uh, where <laughs> there's just been a regime change in, um, in North Korea mm-hmm. and President Obama calls some advisors in and says, you know, how do we, uh, what do we do to, to approach this new guy? What's, what's our angles? What chance do we have to have conversations with Kim Jong-un? And one of the advisors says to Barack Obama in the White House, get Steve Kerr. Let's make <laughs> Steve Kerr a, an emissary to North Korea. Yeah. And that's one, of, that's one of those moments where I'm typing and I'm saying, really? Seriously? Are you kidding me? That's, that, that he's in there and talking about Malcolm having a meeting with Yasser Arafat and talking about, um, we get into some things that had never been uh, noted before that had never been discussed. Uh, Steve went, uh, his, the, the Kerr family sued Iran mm-hmm. for killing Malcolm in, in court in uh, Washington, D.C. And Steve's testimony was somewhere between bizarre and hilarious and heartbreaking just the way all the different directions he went yeah and those are those moments where it's like this is this is why you know i wrote this book and this is why i think people will like it because you're talking about what he did for the bulls against the jazz and what he did on the warriors sideline and what it was like to play for pop you're doing all the basketball stuff but it's much more than a basketball story just gets into layers that that this is a life that that is incomparable to anybody else in sports or maybe in a lot of different ways. He's doing stand-up routines at Second City in Chicago. <laughs> uh, he's having moments where he can barely stand up without holding onto the wall. He's in so much pain from the what started as the back injury. One after another, there's these moments where I was saying to myself, I'm really can't believe that I came up with this to include this. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And as we said, like the mantra of like joy and hope and optimism that rings through all of this, like despite all these circumstances, um, like when he had the back issues, the team was tearing through the league. Right. That was a 73 win season. There's still joy and hope and optimism, even in the midst of these weird, difficult circumstances. It's a really interesting tension in Kerr's life. Above all, he's appreciative. As I said, he's the first guy to say how lucky he is, that, that he's been fortunate. Uh, he knows he was never supposed to be at Arizona. He knows he was never supposed to have a, a long NBA career. Um, the relationships that he's made that he ended up being able to learn from Phil Jackson and learn from Greg Popovich and Lute Olson and Lenny Wilkins and be surrounded by, at almost every stop, by positive teammates, things he was able to learn from. The way he constantly turned bad into good is a remarkable part of the storyline. He got punched out by Michael Jordan. He got beat up by Michael Jordan uh, in a a Bulls practice. It's a big shiner over his eye, and it turns out to be one of the best things to ever happen to Steve because that, that showed Michael something, and that won Michael over. And if you got Michael on your side and you're in Chicago, that's that's a pretty good guardian angel to have on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. But it's just it, it's a it's a long list of bad moments turning into some of the best things to ever happen to him. The knee injury we mentioned before, when he was 
after his junior year at Arizona, uh, ends up having to redshirt what would have been his senior year. So when he comes back for that for the fifth season, uh, the Wildcats are much better around him, and they end up making a great run to the Final Four. Uh, that wouldn't have happened if he didn't blow out his knee. So it's it's a long list of somebody who appreciates uh, all the good things that have happened to him because he realized that so many of them could have turned out worse. Well, I appreciate the fact that you made some time and were able to hang out with me, and we can talk about Steve Kerr, A Life. As you said, the book is out now at all the various... Uh, online bookshops, indie bookshops. Thank you so much, Scott, for the book. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Sammy. This has been great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. You've just heard Scott Howard Cooper who's written a compelling NBA biography, Steve Kerr, A Life. I'm Sammy, host of My Summer Lair. Some of my favorite quotes from this NBA bio. Ready for this? Page 12. When the Kerrs moved in 1976 to Egypt, when Malcolm would be a distinguished visiting professor at American University in Cairo, Anne warned the kids that they were not going to like the country much. <laughs> she says, The food is terrible. The weather is hot and sticky for months on end, everything is always dusty, and the TV is in Arabic. But she added, we'll learn a lot and it will be a great adventure. <laughs> Amazing mom. This passage made me laugh because I've visited Egypt a number of times in the late 80s into the 90s, and Anker is spot on. The TV was, and still, in many ways, is still terrible. Thank God for Netflix. The Kerrs set up shop in the suburb of Maadi. I'm currently in Heliopolis, another suburb about 20-25 km uh, from where the Kerrs lived. Their special area has a lot of bilingual bookshops and a cultural life particularly geared towards Westerners. However, Steve Kerr adds, uh, this is on page 17, People don't understand what Cairo is like, he said years later. They think of Egypt and they think of pyramids and camels. Actually, for an American teenager in Cairo, it's a great place. There are Americans all over, and there aren't very many rules you have to follow. I had a great time over there. That dude is correct. I know what he's talking about. I can understand why he enjoyed Cairo so much. I share all this to underscore what Scott said in our conversation. This isn't just an NBA biography. If you want stories about Jordan the Bulls or Curry and the Warriors, they're in there. And like everyone else, I dig those stories, even though I can't relate to them. I wasn't on the Bulls in the 90s playing with Jordan in the midst of two dominant three-beats. So yeah, as a writer, tell me what that was like. But in between those public moments, those moments that we've all witnessed, are the private moments. And those, those private moments, they instantly offer connection. There are many aspects of Kerr's strange and improbable life I can relate to. And that doesn't always happen with an NBA biography, or more importantly, with an NBA life. Steve Kerr is one of the reasons why the Warriors are a special team. I don't know why, but I thought Jordan and the Bulls would be an endless reign. Their domination was as consistent as the sun and the moon. I was young, and I was wrong in that order. I don't know for how long we'll have Curry and Clay and Kerr on the Warriors, but as long as we do, 
savor these moments and treasure these highlights. Something this good is rare and easily prompts gratitude. I won't limit my question to the NBA, but if you want to focus on the NBA, that's also fine too. But today, this very moment, what are you thankful for? You can let me know what you're thankful for at all three. My Summer Lair for IG, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, I will be grateful if you follow me. Does that work? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me in an NBA world. Cairo, yo.